Thanks for pressing play on this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. Across this series, we're bringing you world-changing ideas from our researchers. Whether you're curious about nature and ecology, technology, security, or health, in Life Solved, we're seeking out cutting-edge research and asking the big questions about how it's set to change our world in the near future. Today, we're delving into our democracy and citizenship theme. When was the last time you openly discussed something political on social media? What I was surprised to find was that the vast majority didn't share or express their political views online right. publicly or semi-publicly in Facebook because they were worried about their reputational damage or impact of right. someone seeing that. One researcher has been exploring how our political behaviour is evolving in the digital age. We're seeing very kind of dystopian uh, accounts of how social media is potentially controlling or impacting democracy in negative ways. After big media scandals and bids of transparency by social media platforms, it looks like the ways in which we acquire information and interact politically online have become more nuanced. And it's an ever-changing landscape as elections, local and world events come and go, and our preferred platforms rise and fall. Today, John Worsey is going to be finding out what online activism looks like in the present day, and how politics and social media go hand in hand. Dr. James Dennis is senior lecturer in political communication and journalism. One of his focuses. Is political communication in social media and digital news? So I was doing my PhD. You had the student protests in London. You had occupations up and down at universities around the country. You saw people very quickly, quickly using digital tools to mobilise physically and have real impact. James's research has stretched to the analysis of political content from groups such as Momentum, the left-wing grassroots movement. He's also looked at lobbying bodies such as Thirty Eight Degrees. An activist non-profit that mobilizes its mailing list members to come together for group actions through petitions, blogging, and offline activities such as calling local MPs. So what I'm really interested in is looking at the ways in which people cons- consume political news, yeah. understand and reflect on it, discuss political news, and how that then relates to the ways in which they participate in political life. Okay. Normally, when I start talking about what I do, people kind of Seem to see it as an excuse to spend all of my time looking at Facebook and Twitter,、right. which it partially is. <laughs> We need to see, you know, in everyday situations, in everyday circumstances, how do Facebook and Twitter impact the way that we learn about news, the way we talk about news with our friends and families, and the way in which we participate in public and political life. Yeah. So that's the way I try and get at it, and、yeah. inclusive that includes all the different ways we encounter politics online. So anything from reading a news story to sharing a meme. All of these things are political acts, and I, I argue they need to be explored together, not in isolation. If you analyse things in isolation, like petitions or Cambridge Analytica, you're going to get a very skewed perspective of what is、uh, a communication medium. Revelations in recent years have given political manipulation of social media a bad press. The public are now sceptical around who is controlling the information we see and the emotions it provokes in us. A famous example was the Cambridge Analytica scandal of 2018. It was revealed a data consulting firm had misappropriated personal Facebook data to influence the outcome of election campaigns. On the one hand, there are people that, especially a few years ago, kind of saw social media as being this democratizing force. Everyone's going to be able to lobby and contact their politicians.、Yeah. 
On the flip side of the discussion last year, we're seeing very kind of dystopian uh, accounts of yeah. how social media is potentially controlling or impacting democracy in negative ways. James studied the activities of Momentum, a grassroots movement supporting the Labour Party. He found that its engagement operated on distinct levels. With this project, I was particularly interested in comparing the national level and what Momentum do in terms of their, they have a, like a team of paid communication officers that work yeah. on their social media strategy, but also what Momentum do at the local level. They've got 200 groups up and down the country that do local activism. And I was fascinated to try and see, is there a difference between the national level organisation and yeah. the local level organisation in terms of how they operate on social media? So the national level, there was lots of evidence of controlled interactivity. The group shares lots of, firstly they share lots of news stories that relate to Momentum's aims with an explicit aim of getting more supporters to sign up to become paid members. So it's kind of one of their key goals on national level social media is to get them to sign up to get more money into the organisation. Secondly, they have, rather than kind of asking for people to, to make suggestions on what their campaign focus should be, or, or getting people involved in deciding on candidates for internal Labour Party elections, mm. they instructed their membership to complete specific acts. So it was yeah. very much like, go and do this for us, this will help us achieve our goals. And in, in the context of the time period I was looking at, this was vote for these candidates in internal Labour Party elections. So members and supporters had no influence on choosing that, that slate of candidates, yeah. that list of candidates. They were just told to vote for these specific candidates. And the third key thing that I noticed on the national level, which is something that is quite innovative in the context of organisational politics, is that their ability to create very funny viral video in a kind of authentic, organic way, compared to you know, lots of political parties have tried to create funny videos yes. and failed miserably and yeah. mocked for it, mocked mercilessly for it. At the local level organisation, and here I focused on the, the Portsmouth Momentum Group, yeah. they use a private Facebook group to make decisions collectively. Yeah. It's much more like a social movement where they'll have conversations on the Facebook group which overlap with their face-to-face -face conversations that they have in their regular meetings. But ultimately, the issues that they prioritise, the campaigns that they start, the way in which they target their communication is all decided by members. Mm. For instance, they, they organised a, a vigil for Grenfell a year after a year after Grenfell had taken yeah. place. And that was not at all in alignment with Momentum's focus at that point at, at a national level, but it was something that got national level support for that local level effort. At the national level, they have the campaigning practices that look similar to a political party. At the yeah. local level, they have the campaigning and digital practices that look like a social movement. And that's a really interesting mm. blend of different styles and practices. And this kind of hybridity of these two different styles mm. is something we've not really seen many organisations do. So what did James conclude were the most crucial elements of engaging individuals all over the country with the political wranglings of Westminster? We know from lots of studies in political engagement that, that, that citizens in contemporary politics, when we, try, when we want to understand why they participate and what it, what's a key factor in extended um, high threshold participation is efficacy. People want to see value from their actions. They want to see how they are individually contributing to the cause that they're passionate about. And Momentum having this dual structure at the local level provides that. And people can feel that they're being autonomous and having an impact at the local level, yeah. yet still recognise at the national level they're trying to contribute to this electoral ambition. 
So, is social media good or bad for our democratic freedoms? We get very caught up in the sensationalism of Cambridge Analytica, and we get very caught up in the sensationalism of, you know, the the Facebook revolution. And it was Facebook that led to the collapse of regimes in the you know 2010 2011 period. Um, Egypt, Tunisia, etc. Yeah. But really, what we need to do as researchers is to engage in. I'm very passionate about qualitative research. Talk to people, use techniques like diaries, which I've used in my work, and get a real sense of how do people on the ground in everyday life experience social media and politics, and then understand how these tools are impacting these processes, rather than just judging it on single cases. Any advertiser can use Facebook. To target specific demographics, yeah. and that's not something I think that's ever really been. I mean, it's something that if you work in the industry, you、yeah. know about this. This、yeah. is a kind of oh, it's the business model, isn't it? Yeah, that's how that's how they exist. Exactly. But for, for political parties advertising, I mean, the Conservatives used it very, very effectively in 2015, targeting marginal constituencies with、um, specific adverts using Facebook. And research has shown that it had some impact. It's very hard to say if it was a, you know. Real cause in those in those victories, but I don't know if you remember a campaign a few years ago called Stop Coney or Coney 2012. There was a video that went viral on social media, and people were very critical of it because it it made the kind of claim that by sharing the video you can make a difference. This was the Ugandan warlord, yeah, the warlord Joseph Coney, and whilst there were huge problems with that campaign, it、uh, led to this this idea of slacktivism, which is a kind of prerogative term. It's a criticism of, of Of, uh, of, of digital engagement online, the, the idea behind it is that, that these acts that we do online, signing a petition, sharing a political status update, put, changing our profile picture to support a cause, have no real impact or influence on politics,、right. and are dangerous because more, the more that people do them and feel fulfilled by doing them, the less inclined they are to go onto the streets to protest or to、right. contact their MP. It replaces kind of tried and tested forms、yeah. of activism. So, is using social media as a news source really a lazy or unreliable way of engaging with news or political thought? Slacktivism would say, you know, the reason people start to share a video or a petition is because they want to look like they care about an issue to their friends,、mm. not because they have genuine、um, interest in an issue. Yeah. James went about his research by studying 30 mailing list members of the group 38 Degrees. He wondered how this could really represent the politically engaged British public. The members that I spoke to did not look at all like the members that you would associate with a political party.、Yeah. They don't carry a formal political formal card, which、yes. is what you normally get as a rank and file member of a party. And what, what was quite interesting, actually, with Thirty Eight Degrees, is I did a, a number of、uh, members' meals where I, I asked members to come for a, for a meal, which I paid for. We all sat down. We spoke about the campaigns they were involved in, and what was really quite Awkward was how many differences of opinion there were, and substantial differences、right. of opinion over really important is- issues. So LGBTQ rights, environmental issues. There was climate change deniers and、yeah. climate change enthusiasts、wow. uh, in the same room. It was a really quite, a, as, as someone who was kind of moderating the event, was quite a, a difficult、yeah. challenge. But in the end of the day, what, was, what kind of united them was that for them, what they all kind of enjoyed about their membership with Thirty Eight Degrees was that. It was all on their terms.、Mm. So they could choose the campaigns they wanted to be involved with.、Yeah. They could, and, and then for those campaigns, they felt that they could have some kind of tangible influence、yeah. over the decisions that are made within the campaign. James's interviews also ended up having a secondary benefit to show how digital campaign groups such as Thirty Eight Degrees 
were allowing time-poor people to continue to engage with politics and to have a voice. One of the things I think they really appreciated was the interview data which helped to illuminate just, you know, for a lot of 38 Degrees members, these are people that have highly demanding lives, whether it's yeah. through, you know, one member I spoke to was in her 60s caring for her husband and just didn't have the time to be as politically engaged as she used to be. Uh, and therefore she really valued 38 Degrees because yeah. she, it, was, it was like a, a democratic shortcut for her. She could have a say on issues, she could mobilise and lobby corporations or lobby the government through the tools 38 Degrees yeah. provided. But also as well within that there were you know, undergraduate students who I spoke to who you know, had demanding degrees, also demanding social lives yeah. and were trying to fit politics, you know, to try and fit some engagement within that, yeah. within that remit. And I think 38 Degrees found that very useful to, as a way of understanding how their tools can be seen and perceived as kind of these democratic shortcuts yeah. to help people who feel pressured by time. James set out to explore just how much the politically engaged were interacting with public social media as a campaign device. The results were surprising. 38 Degrees work is trying to help non-governmental organisations, charities, um, civil society groups better understand how to communicate with their members. Right. Um, and I think one of the, the things that surprised 38 Degrees was just how unwilling people were, even their members, people who are, you know, s some of the members I spoke to, I spoke to them at protests, so they were yeah. very high, highly engaged when it came to politics. And even though they were willing to take a day off work to come to a protest, mm. they were unwilling to go onto the group's Facebook page to express their political opinions. Right. I got 30 people to fill out a diary each week mm. to reflect upon how they consume news, where they access it, how they talk about politics, and how social media fits into that. Yeah. So it was a very it's a qualitative piece of work. People were, were kind of free to uh, write and reflect in, in their own words, which is something that I think is, is very important because politics impacts everyone in very different ways, and we all define politics in very different ways. And what I found through that project was, which surprised me, and also kind of went against the, the, this idea of slacktivism, was that the, the majority of participants who had recruited I recruited them on the basis that they were they regularly checked social media and that they had some level of interest in politics. Yeah. But what I was surprised to find was that the vast majority didn't share or express their political views online right. publicly right. or semi-publicly in Facebook because they were worried about their reputational damage or impact of right. someone seeing that. Instead, what they would do is use Facebook Messenger, use WhatsApp, these kind of semi-public or private forms of communication to reflect and discuss political news items that they may have seen on social media, they might have seen on the news, they might have heard on the radio. So people aren't as willing to publicly share their political opinions as freely as we previously thought. But that doesn't mean they're not using digital channels to participate in politics in a more private manner. Could this mean there is still a pattern to the way individuals are using social media for political engagement? There sometimes are quite lazy assumptions that people who use social media as their primary source of news, sometimes that's equated to it's their only source of news, yeah. which really isn't the case. That Yes, you might have younger cohorts of individuals that rely on Facebook and Twitter for their main port of news, mm -hmm. but they're often, you know, the way, you know, daily existence, you're always going to be exposed to news yes. in other places, whether that's on yeah. the TV, whether it's communications with family, etc. And what the diary research really helped to show me was just this process in terms of the similarities in terms of 
yes, there are people that will, would, have, would go to social media first for their news. Yes, there are people that would rely promptly on the 10 o'clock news broadcast yeah. on the BBC. But the kind of reflective process that these sets of citizens take is remarkably similar. Right. You know, in terms of you know, watching the news and having a conversation with a loved one or looking at a, seeing a Facebook post, a controversial one, then going to WhatsApp and having a, a contact, yeah. you know, having a message with your best friend. Yeah. Uh, it's remarkably similar, these processes are. And what I think we've seen with the incredibly surprising election of Jeremy Corbyn to leader of the Labour Party mm. is social media being a important political space for young people, whether that's as an important space to consume news, but also I think it's an important space to form connections with very kind of niche groups. So in terms of Facebook and social media, can users really trust themselves to choose whether they are influenced by ads or politically motivated content? I think one of the things that I was most surprised by was that even the most, what I described as civic instigators, those who were deliberately provoking people on political Mm. issues, had clear political interest in quite um, strong issues and, and sometimes kind of political ideologies. Even when they were using social media, they would see things that, that disagree with their yeah. views. And I was quite kind of, I, was, you know, I, I thought it was quite a, a positive thing to see, yeah. that, that people yeah. were exposed to these opinions and content that, that differs from theirs. Yeah. Obviously, all of this is kind of, has a little asterisk next to it, because it all depends on how Facebook changed their algorithm. And yeah. it, is a, it constantly changes. So yeah. one of the, the kind of negative things of this area is that traditionally gatekeepers, those that kind of decide what news you see, would be journalists or editors. They would be the ones making the decisions on what goes on your front page. What is the ordering of the stories you're going to see in the, in the 10 o'clock broadcast? The difficulty with Facebook and Twitter, more, more so Facebook because of the way the, the newsfeed works, is that you have a corporation making decisions about the kind of news content you're seeing. As technology evolves, so too does our behaviour, it seems. People are finding more private ways to create political discourse and perhaps this is where the real influence lies. So how can political bodies use this information as a force for good to better engage with all aspects of society? One of the kind of ways I've tried to kind of disseminate these findings to help these organisations is to talk about how they can better integrate, whether it's forums or whether there are challenges with using forums or better integrate WhatsApp or private forms of communication or, or kind of closed group communication. Yeah as a way of better engaging with their membership. Also as well, working with groups that haven't, you know, have, have traditionally been very kind of driven by leaders or by elites. And yeah. how can they better change the, use social media to bring their, their membership into the room yeah. so that they feel like they're able to be involved in decision making. Mm. So the next project that I'm just starting on at the moment is looking at in areas with low social mobility, so areas that have had real issues with deprivation, um, where young people are the least likely to go to university to, to kind of um, break out from whatever kind of, uh, kind of class or demographics they are in. How does social media shape and change their politics? Because uh, hopefully there, there'll be some kind of ways to see how you know, we can use social media to better att- address some of these um, issues of inequality. But just as grassroots groups can be a hotbed for democratic discussion, there is a risk that they are used for less productive purposes too. Just as these tools can link people around very niche, important causes like LGBTQ rights, they can also link people around issues such as racism, sexism, yeah. etc. And we've seen that in the UK with the, you know, with the 
the growth of Brim First, for instance, on Facebook. Yeah. Um, well, and ISIS are very good at, with, at using encrypted exactly, yeah, communications, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Like social media and so on. So it's important to remember, just as these, you know, I'm very optimistic about the kind of everyday opportunities. It's also to yeah. remember that they can be used in negative contexts yeah. as well. I think social media can be a really important spark or starting point for political interest. Mm. After our interview with James was recorded, the world saw a series of events take place that would add to the discourse on how information is shared, disseminated and used. On the 25th of May 2020, a black man called George Floyd was murdered by a Minnesota police officer using excessive force whilst under arrest. This incident of police brutality sparked protest across the United States and around the world. The event led to conversation in the Black Lives Matter movement. In addition to public gatherings and physical acts of solidarity, there was a strong reaction on social media. James explained how simple behaviours on social media acted as a springboard to further engagement within the issues involved. The kind of case study that fits very much with my research area was this, this um, example that happened after the killing of George Floyd, Blackout Tuesday. This was formed by initially by people involved in the music industry, where they encouraged people to change their profile pictures on social media, but also post images on their social media of a black square to symbolize support with the on the ground protests around the United States and around the world in relation to police brutality and, and the killing of George Floyd. Now, what's interesting is whenever it's, it's you know, I started research on my book uh, originally as a PhD back in 2011. And since then, there was uh, Stop Coney, there was Bring Back Our Girls. It seems every few years there is a kind of a case of activism or, or a hashtag on social media that really brings back this slacktivist critique, the idea that, you know, if you change your profile picture or post a status or sign an e-petition, you're not going to have any real meaningful impact on politics. And interestingly, with, with Blackout Tuesday, what you saw was some uh, similar critiques came up. Some of them uh, very valid, some of them, I think, problematic. Some of the more valid ones, for instance, that you saw was around how people were sharing these black images to the Black Lives Matters hashtag. Now, that is, uh, was problematic because people were using that hashtag to share operational, kind of on-the-ground help and support to people who were, who were directly involved within the protests globally. You also saw people kind of amplifying and discussing how this potentially might not be the best form of solidarity with the movement, just posting a black square. What does it actually add to our debate and our understanding? And you also saw these kind of critiques of slacktivism in the sense of it's, it's a lazy form of engagement. It's an easy way out. If you do that and then don't go out and protest, then what are you really helping uh, kind of contributing to the cause? But what I think is interesting, and I saw this with the example of Stop Coney in 2012, and then you kind of see this with a lot of petition campaigns, is that these moments act as kind of important points of learning for people. And it's not even just the act of sharing the image, but also the critique itself. So in the debates and the critique around the image that we saw on social media, we saw people sharing um, evidence of readings of, of great accounts from black activists who you could follow and learn from, whether it's, you know, uh, understanding kind of modes of speech or understanding systemic racism in terms of our behaviour and attitudes. This kind of acted as a, a, a learning opportunity and kind of one of the, the core problems with slacktivism and focusing on these kind of low threshold, seemingly easy acts is that we focus on them in isolation. We don't see how the act complements 
other forms of offline or other forms of online activity, how it's it's part of a, a set of participation that overlap and interact with each other. We also ignore as well what happens before and after these acts of, of kind of microactivism online. So, for instance, a little bit of an anecdote, but my, my uh, niece, who's just turned 15, she was involved in this. And since, since she shared the image, she's been sharing Instagram stories, she's been sharing posts on, on Facebook, you know, sharing readings, sharing activist accounts. It's, it was kind of her, uh, a sparking point for her to become more interested and involved uh, in the movement itself. And I think when we look at this as a process, we can see some of the benefits that these campaigns have in, people, in terms of people's understanding and engagement. You know, for people that are interested in digital campaigning by Black Lives Matter, there's great research conducted by Dean Freelon, uh, Charlton McIlwain and Meredith Clark, who looked into Black Lives Matter uh, in detail. And what they found is that by interviewing activists, their main purpose wasn't to uh, necessarily even force some kind of you know, high level change in terms of behaviour, but it was more about challenging and trying to influence people's attitudes. So they highlighted education as being a key part of, of, of their reason why they wanted to kind of mobilise and share content online. And I think here, if you look at the evidence from Black Lives Matter recently and the killing of George Floyd, you've seen you know, large-scale evidence of amplification of marginalised voices. You've seen lots of evidence of people sharing educational resources in relation to, in relation to the killing and in relation to people's behaviour and attitudes. During the coronavirus pandemic, when the UK was in a state of lockdown, it was revealed that a senior government advisor had breached guidelines and broken the law. James was interested by the spread of reaction and the reporting of information across social media. The reaction to Dominic Cummings breaking the lockdown in terms of the the journey up to Durham, followed by then visiting Bernard's castle uh, to test his eyesight. In terms of public reaction on social media, well, social media was really interesting, I think, with, with, with this example, because, yes, we did see, you know, clear divides in terms of whether or not you're a supporter of either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party, but also divides in terms of um, supporting and leaving the European Union. There was some element of divides in terms of whether or not you would support or condone Dominic Cummings' actions, but it wasn't as clear as I think a lot of people expected. What we often saw on social media in, in relation to this was, you know, one of the most kind of active areas of political discussion at the moment on social media is local groups whether it's like, you know, spotted in your city, kind of local discussion groups. And here we saw people, it wasn't really through the frame of politics necessarily, but through the frame of kind of personal experience. What would I do in this situation? What have I been through during the lockdown? And comparing personal circumstances um, as a kind of um, way of judging and, and deciding whether or not what Dominic Cummings did was appropriate. A lot of it was very personal in, in terms of people sharing and disclosing what they've been through and comparing it to Dominic Cummings in order to make a judgment on on kind of what happened. We also saw, interestingly, it was someone online on social media, not a journalist, that discovered they used a tool called Wayback Internet Archive, uh, Wayback Machine, to to understand and show that the claim that Dominic Cummings had made that that he had warned about coronavirus pandemics in a blog post previous to his claims was actually, uh, had been edited in April which kind of disclaimed already one of the claims he'd made during his his press conference. And again, so it's interesting we see how, you know, this is just a member of the public responding to a press conference. And that contribution is then amplified by the press, it's amplified by politicians. And it's a great way of showing how 
social media enables and allows the public in some circumstances to disrupt news cycles and to have a role and influence over the way that a story is told. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. And thanks to James for sharing his findings. You can find out more about his work at port.ac.uk slash research. We'd love to hear what you think of the research discussed in this programme. So do get in touch via social media and shout about this podcast using the hashtag LifeSolved. Next time, we'll be back with the researcher who's tackling one of our most prevalent and embarrassing conditions, thanks to smart analysis and tech. The disease of retinitis starts to become prevalent at age 40, 50, yeah. 55, something like that. So people are in employment, they're in relationships, they like to travel to go places, and all those things become really problematic. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to get every episode of Life Solved automatically. And please do tell us what you think with a review and rating if you get a moment.